You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, I talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, adventurers, and more, all uncovering and in learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly on KWMR from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Well, today's show is going to feature a few different updates from various ocean experts in the field. There's been so much, there's always so much going on with the ocean. So we're going to have three different guests today. We're going to do some little speed interviews. And first, we'll be getting an update from Russ Bradley of Point Blue Conservation Science on a widespread seabird die-off that started a few weeks ago on the West Coast. So we'll learn what's going on with that. Followed by Dr. Lance Morgan of Marine Conservation Institute who will tell us about the creation of the Pacific Remote Islands Marine National Monument, which happened earlier this year. And then later on, and after the half hour, we'll have a break, and we'll have an update about the sea star wasting disease event that's been happening for the last year on the West Coast with Dr. Pete Ramundi of UC Santa Cruz. So lots of information, a very busy show. So stay tuned, and we'll be right back with Russ Bradley. the line with me, I have Rust Bradley of Point Blue Conservation Science. Welcome, Rust. You're live on the air. Oh, well, thank you. Thanks for having me, Jennifer. Russ is a senior scientist with the Farallon Program at Point Blue Conservation Science, and we've had Russ on before. He directs all aspects of research at the Farallon Islands, which is just a fascinating, wonderful place out on just a couple miles offshore here of Point Reyes. But today we're mainly going to talk about what's been going on with Cassin's Auklets. And I, Russ, I understand there's been a die-off that's happened. But before we get into the die-off, can you just describe this special little seabird? They're so unique and wonderful. And maybe you can just tell us a little bit about them and what they eat and where they breed. For sure, Jennifer. The Cassin's Auklets are a very unique species. These are small uh, diving seabirds that are related to uh, the common murres and the guillemots that you'd uh, more likely see uh, along the coast. And so they use their short little stubby wings to actually dive underwater and catch their main prey of krill, which is pretty unique uh, among the seabirds in our region, our region for a species to focus completely on krill. They breed uh, only on offshore islands, and they're really seen mostly far offshore um, and they actually attend the uh, breeding colonies like the Farallons only at night. You only see them out at night. They have really unique vocalizations. I've heard them described as sounding like crickets on steroids. And they live in these, uh, in these uh, burrows underneath the ground while they're nesting or rock crevices or, or nest boxes that we utilize in our, in our research to follow and study them. And they're a very unique species because we found them to be an excellent indicator of uh, what's going on with the krill in our region. And um, we've been studying these birds in depth since 1971, continuously out on the Farallon National Wildlife Refuge. And we've, uh, we've been able to track a lot of different changes that have been going on in the system through observing how successful they are in their breeding and in their survival. So they're a really important seabird to keep an eye on, for sure. 
And this summer, uh, it sounded like they had a very good start to breeding. We had pretty good upwelling early in the season. And then what's been happening this last month? It seems kind of late for something like this to be happening, but why don't you tell us what's been going on? Well, basically in this region, um, the spring uh, and summer were very productive as far as krill is concerned. We had blue whales uh, near the island in January, and again in March we had the auklets um, breeding at the highest um, densities that we've ever seen uh, in very, very healthy numbers and uh, with very healthy chicks and um, really high reproductive success, the, actually the highest that we'd ever seen from the from the first clutches, basically the first attempt of these birds to breed. And then the ocean in this region really changed about mid-July. Um, we went from having a lot of krill and a lot of juvenile rockfish to this warm water incursion that's been observed that is not El Nino, but something else uh, that really caused, has caused water temperatures to increase. It's caused a lot of tropical species to move up into the area, and it's also caused... Um, uh, apparently a, a uh, reduction in krill, and you had a lot of birds fledging, basically fledging into these conditions, into these uh, conditions that became very poor. And this year is the first year out of the last several where the auklets have not been able to successfully rear a second clutch, um, where they where they have another egg and chick after successfully rearing one um, the first time through. All of those attempts failed uh, this year. So that's what's that's what's happened in our region. So we're starting to see some mortality, um, a fair amount of mortality above what's normally been observed through our partners that uh, conduct um, beach surveys. What's the, the region? Oh, I'm sorry. What's the ge- geographic range that these uh, the birds are washing up on the beaches in terms of? Is it just here locally in the Point Reyes region, or is this broad scale? It's a very it's a it's a very good question because it it it, it plays into what's being observed overall. So in this region, uh, with some of the standardized surveys that are conducted by organizations like Beachwatch and and uh, Beachcombers, um, are finding you know a, a larger than normal carcasses between Point Arena and Año Nuevo. But this event actually spreads all the way up into Washington State. And um, there, there are high densities of, of dead birds being found there as well. And there's this, there's still some birds coming in, uh, but and there's still more research to be done. But the early indication is that all, most of the birds that have been found have been juveniles, have been young of the year, and have been very emaciated. And another thing to keep in mind as well on your question of range is that this species. Um, most of the species, or most of the world's population of this species, actually breeds in British Columbia, where I'm from. And there's a, a large colony, a very large, the largest colony in the world is um, an island called a Triangle Island off the northern tip of Vancouver Island, and there are several other large colonies. And our, our partners up there with the um, Canadian Wildlife Service tell us that um, orchids there had an incredible reproductive season as well. Uh, the best that they'd seen in 20 years. And what happens with those birds in the wintertime is that they will actually migrate down the coast, down to California. So it appears that both our birds locally, of which um, you know we have about 20,000, a, a little over 20,000 at the Fairlawn, so basically this, this Canadian population is, is, over, is well over 10 times, more like 20, 25 times what we have down here. So that these birds that we may be seeing along the entire coast are... Definitely, probably some some of our some of our birds from the Farallon Islands, but also um, 
probably a lot of these uh, starving juveniles from these larger colonies in Canada that have that have headed south for the winter as they normally do. Wow, that's fascinating. I did not know that there was a colony that would actually migrate down here this time of year for feeding. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. How about how far south do they breed Cassin's They actually will breed into Mexico. So oh. we have we have Cassin's in the Farallon Islands. They also breed in the Channel Islands, and there's a population in uh, down into uh, you know central uh, central Baja California, basically, and they stretch all the way up north into the Aleutian Islands. And recent genetic work shows that uh, the population from the Aleutian Islands to about the Farallons is, is pretty similar in terms of uh, its genetic makeup, and things really start to change with the, uh, with the birds that are in the Channel Islands and especially down in Mexico. So they range along the entire Pacific coast. Um, if, people are, if people encounter either dead or dying seabirds, either on the beach or near shore, which is just not typical, they shouldn't be seen near shore, is there any protocol that you'd recommend for people to, to call or notify anybody? Well, a lot of those uh, beaches are being surveyed regularly for for dead birds. So I think one of the initial things is to not um, remove animals that are on the beach. But I think um, through our, our partners at the Gulf of the Farallons National Marine Sanctuary and the Marine Sanctuary Association, the Beach Watch program in this region, in the uh, uh, surveys beaches in the in the West Marin region, and um, going on the web and looking up contacts for them would probably um, would probably be advisable. You could you could notify them, uh, especially if there was um, a dramatic event with a lot of uh, a lot of individuals found. But there are regular surveys for for these animals on beaches. So I think that's one of the big messages that um, folks want to get out is to is to not not remove these animals when they find them. Uh, initially, and to uh, in, inform the folks who would uh, be able to come out and survey for them. Good to know. Okay. Now, this is, it sounds like this is definitely related to food. And how about overall for the population? Is this a concern? I know that their population seems to go up and down a little bit. And because they're such an important species to monitor, is there a concern about this large-scale die-off in terms of their overall success of a population in years to come? So for our feral population, We've been lucky enough that, you know, through over 40 years of study, we've been able to track a lot of individuals, look at adult survival and some of these key metrics that can tell us about what's happening with populations. And the real question is, is this event confined to primarily affecting juveniles and young of the year? And it appears so far that those are the, those are the individuals that have encountered these sort of fledglings that have fledged into really poor conditions. These, these birds are very long-lived you know, they don't start breeding until they get, um, you know, most into three or four years old, and they can live up to 20 years. We have individuals that have, have made it that old. So if this, if this event is limited to mostly young of the year, then while there may be some impacts to the population, they would not be as pronounced as if this were affecting a lot of adult birds as well. And in major events like major El Nino's or potentially events like oil spills that would affect adults as well, you're going to see more population impact. Um, from an event like that. So we still need to get a, a more complete sense of, of what's going on with this particular die-off. But if it is targeting exclusively juvenile young-of-the-year birds, then the overall population impact is not going to be as big as some of these other mortality events because a lot of these birds, if it's, if it's not affecting the adults, 
uh, basically a lot of the seabird strategy is to live a long time and be able to ride, a, ride out unsuccessful reproductive years. And the last few, several years since 2010 have been extremely, extremely good for cats and sockets in this area. So if it's mostly juveniles, less of an impact. If it's affecting a lot of adults as well, that could have a sizable population impact. Well, that's good to know. Let's hope that there's no oil spills or any other complicating factors to affect the adults. But um, Russ, I know that there's a team of biologists on the island and they're seasonal out there in terms of what's going on with the weather. Is there a place where people can learn about what's going on in the Farallon Islands or other activities of Point Blue on the web that you'd recommend folks to check out? Absolutely. Uh, folks can come to our website at pointblue.org and see what's going on in the in the organization. And we also have a, uh, a blog on the Farallon Islands um, that we update from the island. And it's Los Ferriones, like the Spanish spelling, dot blogspot.com. And we have uh, regular updates there that people can check in and see what's, what's, uh, what's happening out on the Farallons um, through that site as well. That's great. It's a wonderful site. I just checked it out, and it was really fun to see the biologists' Halloween costumes. So go check it out, everybody, of uh, what biologists on the Farallon Islands do for, fair, for Halloween. Well, thanks again, Russ. I appreciate your updates always and the good work that Point Blue is doing, monitoring our local ocean and seabird populations and many, 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 many other things. So thank you so much for calling in today. Thank you, Jenny. That was Russ Bradley of Point Blue Conservation Science, and we were talking about this local, or not so local, it actually goes all the way up to Washington State, die-off of Cassin's Auklets, and it sounds like this is related to the lack of food. We had early good food earlier in the summer, and then it, it scaled back when we had a warm water event come in. We're going to take a quick short music break and come back to learn about the remote Pacific Islands Marine National Monument that has recently been expanded. Very exciting news. Stay with us, and we'll be back in a little bit with Lance Morgan. This is Jennifer Stock. You're tuned to Ocean Currents. And on the phone with me today, I have Dr. Lance Morgan of the Marine Conservation Institute. Lance, welcome. You're live on the air. Hi, Jenny. How are you today? Good. Thank you so much for calling in. Of course. Yep. So this has been a pretty fascinating and exciting year for you, I'm sure. This past September was a huge, huge milestone for ocean conservation with the expansion of the Pacific Romo Islands Marine National Monument. And I know you're extremely involved with this effort. Can you give us a little bit of a background on the creation of it? Sure, thanks. Um, back in uh, with George Bush, uh, President George Bush, we'd initially uh, put together a case for support for he and the Council for Environmental Quality, the White House Office of, for the Council for Environmental Quality, and had argued at the time that we thought the whole uh, surrounding economic exclusive zone of the Pacific Remote Islands needed to be uh, protected because of the, the great cultural and scientific value of the area, and he could do that under the Antiquities Act. <clears throat> and so we had uh, worked then with his administration, and they had actually um, revised the proposal and said we should only protect up to 50 miles around the area, which at the time, of course, was uh, terrific. It was something on the order of 90,000 square miles, and was protection for the coral reefs and the surrounding waters and a lot of the the migratory species, but we had um, 
felt like there was still a very strong argument for uh, the full expansion. And when we uh, were able to hear that uh, there was still some interest in that in the Obama administration earlier this year, we updated a lot of the information and resubmitted our proposal and argued that um, the value of the area as a national monument protect foraging seabirds, many of which forage hundreds of miles offshore in the migrating marine mammals and sea turtles, and including leatherback sea turtles. Um, we ought to uh, really look at this area. Um, it has very low economic activity at present, but you never know what may be coming down the road. So we, we put together this case for support, um, and we're very pleased that President Obama um, took many of the recommendations and expanded this area so that it's now the world's largest protected area of ocean, uh, something close to 500,000 square miles in the Central Pacific. Wow. Where exactly are the these remote Pacific islands? Can you give us a little bit of geographic reference? Well, they actually cover an area that is um, spread across the Central Pacific in an area that's actually, if you kind of overlaid the map of the U.S., um, would be just about as broad as, you know, going from uh, the, you know, the south down around New Orleans all the way up to Seattle. Um, the areas lie along the equator um, adjacent to the island nation of Kiribati uh, to the south, which is almost due south of Hawaii, all the way out to the west of uh, where Wake Atoll is, which is um, really out in the middle of almost nowhere going <laughs> towards Guam, um, and then uh, up to Palmyra um, towards the north, which is one of the closer areas to the Hawaiian island chain. So these are really tiny little atoll islands, probably not very many feet above sea level at this point. That's correct, yes. Um, many of them are coral reef atolls in the, in the classic sense of that, which they were, um, you know, coral reefs that built up onto um, you know, volcanic structures or seamounts, and then the corals continue to kind of keep pace with uh, the sinking of the of the uh, seamount down, but the corals have this living growth around the edges keeps this kind of circular island structure um, going, and most of them have lagoons that the coral reefs fringe around, but none of them have ever been uh, permanently inhabited. They all came into the U.S. possession as a result of um, an 1860s Act of Congress called the Guano Act, which meant we needed the poop of seabirds to help us make um, dynamite and other uh, munitions, and so anyone who was willing to go out there and collect bird guano um, was protected by the U.S. government in exchange for them putting it on barges and shipping it back. Leave it to the U.S. to enact a, a law to go after seabird poop. Right. We need the seabirds. So is there Absolutely. this <laughs> is this south of, I guess this is south of the Papahanaumokuakea Marine National Monument. Is there, are there ecological links between that region, the Northwest Hawaiian Islands and these islands? Right. Yeah. Um, Yes, there are in certain cases. Um, this, again, is a, is a fairly vast area. Most of it is much more right, especially the southern islands are right on the, the tropic, uh, excuse me, the equator. Um, and so they're basically between, um, you know, zero degrees latitude up to about 15, whereas, you know, Hawaii is more in the, a little bit more in the subtropics of 20 degrees latitude. But many of the same um, species, especially the seabirds, um, are common to the area, so things species like the, the red-tailed tropic birds and the boobies and so forth um, overlap that same region, many of the terns as well. Wow. Now, the Papahanaumokuakea Marine National Monument, 
um, was put under the state of Hawaii to be co-managed with NOAA and National Marine Sanctuaries. How is the Pacific Remote Islands Marine National Monument going to be managed or administered? Right. Right. So this is um, territories that were never part of any U.S. state. They were always um, territories of the U.S. federal government. So they are going to be jointly managed by the National uh, Wildlife Refuge Program. The islands themselves were already seabird refuges, and uh, NOAA itself, so a different part of the government um, that also manages sanctuaries. But together, NOAA and the Fish and Wildlife Service co-manage these areas. So with the designation of a monument, what exactly uh, are, what's prohibited in terms of, I know there's not a lot of people actually using that area, but what activities are exclusively prohibited by becoming this monument? Right. So each monument um, is really subject for the president to decide what he wants to allow or or not allow. In this case, they've prevented any commercial um, extraction of both marine life or mining, so there will be no... um, no taking of, of anything like that or any future development of commercial activities in this region. So it will be set aside for uh, scientific exploration and conservation. And, um, you know, the animals and the, the seabirds and the fishes will be the ones that uh, reign out there. Wonderful. What, is, what type of seafloor mining would be of interest in that region? It doesn't sound like an oil type of area, but what type the, of mining yeah, would be? be? No oil and gas. Um, there are... Um, Potentially, and I don't know um, how much of this area has ever really been explored, but rare earth um, elements, manganese nodules, and so forth that do um, are present in different parts of the Pacific. And again, I don't know how much of that might have gone on in this region. Um, There are certainly some crusts um, around some of the seamounts out there that might potentially someday have been worth some money. It's still um, not a hugely... um, cost-effective mining strategy to go to these kind of remote areas and dig up the seafloor for these elements. But uh, you don't know down the road whether that might become, um, with the prices of these uh, elements, somewhat economically feasible in the future. Um, But I don't think we have any real good handle um, that there's recoverable amounts in this region. Great. Definitely precautionary principle is a good way to go. Right. So this is yeah. just must be a fantastic accomplishment for the Marine Conservation Institute. What is the significance of this action in terms of ocean conservation globally? This is now the largest marine protected area in the world, so it must have a lot of significance in this action happening in itself. In, in the global setting, we have something on the order of a little over 2% of the ocean protected in something like a marine protected area similar to the sanctuaries or marine reserves, um, wildlife refuges. So most uh, scientists and, in fact, the uh, the World Parks Congress that recently concluded down in Sydney, Australia, recommend that the number, the amount of ocean that needs to be protected is something on the order to 20 to 30 percent of the ocean. So we clearly have um, a long ways to go to get to those types of numbers. But an area the size of what was just protected by President Obama um, is almost, you know, getting close to a half a percent um, on its own. And so we are um, lucky that the U.S. had this territory that was able to, to, you know, have this kind of vast area protected. But um, it's also leading to a bit of a competition between some of the 
um, nations with large overseas territories. So you see the U.S. Uh, and the United Kingdom uh, with the British Indian Ocean Territory around the Chagos, um, kind of vying for who's got the biggest area, which is which is a nice trend for marine conservation that countries are actually taking some pride in setting aside these areas um, to help uh, secure healthy oceans for the future. Um, France and New Caledonia is looking uh, forward potentially to another large designation of one of their overseas territories. And we have um, places like Palau and the Cook Islands as well stepping up. And so I think where we used to think that that uh, large protected areas could never be um, reasonably managed or protected um, with the advent of technologies and, and satellites and things like that, um, countries are feeling much more confident about the ability to actually manage these areas and do so in a productive way. And we're getting to see some competition amongst the different nations to actually see who can uh, protect the most of the ocean. Um, and like I said, that's that's a great trend if we're trying to get to get from 2% up to 20 or 30% of the ocean protected. And I just want to add, too, I think a lot of times people get upset when they hear protection. They think exclusion and can't do anything. But in reality, a lot of these protections are to basically help sustain life on our planet. We've kind of taken a little bit too much out of the ocean historically. So it's pretty important that we start looking at protecting some sources, some source supplies of food and habitats for all these animals. And I really applaud the work of your organization going after important places like this. Yeah, I, I think you raised a, a really critical point is that with um, some reports as much as 90 to 95 percent of ocean of marine life populations declining, we really do need to invest in some of these recovery zones so that we can rebuild these populations. And as the, the human population continues to grow towards, you know, 9, 10, 11 billion people, um, there, there's a lot of lost productivity out of the oceans uh, that we can regain by you know, strategically uh, recovering certain populations. Um, and, you know, we're also facing a very uncertain future with climate change and, and other impacts that, uh, you know, a lot of people are talking about the sixth um, mass extinction on the planet in the coming years as, as a result of our activities. And so these are the areas that are going to be resilient and probably best able to help us um, survive these types of uh, threats. Great. Well, Lance, thank you so much for talking about this. You know, it's interesting. I heard about this earlier this year, but I didn't hear a ton about it. And I think particularly because um, maybe because National Marine Sanctuaries weren't involved and I work for sanctuaries, but I'm really glad to learn more about it and and about the special place. Um, Is there a website you'd like for folks to visit to learn more about the work of Marine Conservation Institute? Well, you can certainly go to our um, website. Uh, shameless plug for marine-conservation.org, um, and there's plenty of links to get to some of the different sites. Um, there's also the Pacific Remote Islands Marine National Monument has its own website, and you can see some just great pictures of the variety of seabirds and, and other um, marine life that live out there. Um, and we also run a, another site called mpaatlas.org, which where you can learn a lot about the different protected areas we mentioned around the world, and you can explore a map interactively and click and and go find out what some of those areas are on that map. Great. And what was the website for the Remote Islands Monument? Um, you know, good question. You'd have to Google Pacific Remote Islands. I don't okay. know the exact title. Great. Yeah, I'd like to learn more about what they're going to be doing to kind of get it off the ground. 
with the National Wildlife Refuge Program and NOAA. Yep, absolutely. So it's exciting. They will definitely be uh, going through a new round of preparing a management plan for it, and uh, I think um, also an opportunity for you know the public to weigh in and, and voice their opinion about the area as well. Great. Well, Lance, thanks again. We're going to um, yep. move on, but I appreciate you calling in this afternoon, and thanks again for all your time. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Jenny, for the opportunity to talk with you. You're welcome. Yes. Take right. care. Bye. We were just talking with Dr. Lance Morgan, the president of the Marine Conservation Institute, and hearing about the creation of the world's largest marine protected area, the remote Pacific Remote Islands Marine National Monument, 490,000 square miles. And here's a couple more statistics about the place. There's 130 seamounts in the region, undersea mountains, which can provide essential rest stops for tuna and sea turtles migrating across thousands of miles of Pacific Ocean, several million seabirds of 19 species, many of which find the fish and squid they eat in the now-expanded marine monument waters, habitat for whales and dolphins, including the newly discovered Palmyra-beaked whale, and nearly pristine coral reef ecosystems. So it sounds like a phenomenally beautiful, important area. You can learn more about it at marine-conservation.org and as other work through the Marine Conservation Institute at mpaatlas.org. You're tuned to KWMR, 90.5 Point Ray Station, 89.9 Bellinas, and 92.3 the San Geronimo Valley. My name's Jennifer Stock. This is Ocean Currents. We're going to take a short break, come back, and we'll be talking pretty soon with Dr. Pete Ramondi to find out the latest of the sea star wasting disease that's been happening on the West Coast. So stick with us here. We're back here on KWMR. This is Ocean Currents. My name is Jennifer Stock. And we've been doing some quick updates from what's been happening in the ocean world with different guests today. And my guest here on the line, Dr. Peter Ramundi, is with UC Santa Cruz. Pete, you're live on the air. Good to be here. Thanks for joining me today. So the sea star wasting disease has been plaguing our stars on the West Coast since later last year. And uh, Pete was on our show earlier in March this year, giving us an overview of what's been going on. And it, I know there's been some updates and, and findings regarding this wide-scale event, so I thought I'd bring you back on. And maybe you can give us an update from March to now. What have been some new findings regarding the sea star wasting event? I know that it's not done by any means. So what's been found recently? I guess there's really three things to talk about. Uh, the first is where it is and when it got there. And in March, we were hoping that it was slowing down and that we would be talking now about recovery and not about the continuation of the impacts, but unfortunately, that's not the case. It spread both latitudinally. We've seen it move into uh, further north Alaska and more reports from Mexico. And we've also seen it kind of fill in areas that it hadn't affected yet within that range. Again, most species uh, that are what we call rocky substrate species have been shown to be affected. And what I talk, what I'm talking about in particular, are tidepool species and those species that tend to be in kelp forests. Um, it's it's pretty complete with respect to some species, meaning that there are very few locations where they haven't been affected. 
So that's the first thing. The second thing is that we have, uh, with a number of collaborators led by a guy named Ian Houston at Cornell, come uh, done a bunch of epidemiological work and come to the conclusion that the pathogen that is likely, not confirmed, but that is likely to be involved with the disease is a virus, a densovirus, and uh, that it is a virus that has been around for quite a long time. Uh, and, um, and that's important because it means that these animals were not likely to be naive to the virus, and meaning that it wasn't an introduced species or one that had just made inroads into these areas, and so they were naive, meaning that they were likely to be affected by it because they hadn't built up any immunity. This is a virus that, if it's responsible, has been around for at least 70 years, and, and um, they were unlikely to be naive. And so then the big question becomes, and it was pretty much the same question back in March, well, if they have been exposed to, why is this virus suddenly so virulent? And we're working a lot on that. But the third thing is a little bit of silver lining, two pieces of information. One is we've been doing a lot of exploration of more remote areas along the coastline between Alaska and Mexico, and we have found in some very remote areas really healthy populations of sea stars, which we didn't expect, but um, which are true. And so that's kind of good news. And the other thing is that we've seen in some locations, not many, but in some, huge numbers of babies over the last you know six months to nine months which we also didn't expect given the severity of the disease, but we've seen huge numbers of babies of some species, and so that gives us some hope that there will be a recovery more quickly than we had first expected. Wow, very interesting. If this is like a marine pathologist's field day, honestly, because, I mean, we talk so much about viruses and outbreaks and vaccines for humans. We don't talk about that with the ocean so much. And no. here's this virus that's in the ocean, has been in the ocean a long time, and wow, now there's this really interesting event. I just find it fascinating in terms of all the factors that bring it up into affecting this predator in the intertidal area. Do you know how far deep um, observations have been seen in terms of sea star wasting? I know with Cordell Bank, we have not seen an effect of sea stars on Cordell Bank itself or yeah. in the deep areas of Bodega Canyon where we've been. But I'm curious, from the surveys that have been done, do we know how deep it has been observed at? Well, this is this really interesting phenomenon here. We have probably one of the very best characterized marine diseases ever. But with respect to particular habitats where there's been a huge amount of assessment and monitoring over the last 10 to 20 years. So as I was indicating, we have this really great information basis for typal areas and less so, but still very comprehensive for kelp forests. But that's pretty much it. And so we really are ignorant with respect to sandy bottom species, with respect to deeper species. Anything out of those habitats, we have virtually no information. Um, we do get reports from you guys sometimes, you know, when they're doing some ROV cruises or when they're doing, uh, you know, trawls. We get some reports from crab fishermen um, who have indicated to us that they've pulled up pots where there's been disease or not disease stars, but it's very opportunistic and not comprehensive at all. So we're, we're just so unclear as to the extent of it beyond those two habitats. Now, um, one thing I read about this densovirus that I think is interesting is that um, to find out in terms of how how far back this virus has been around, they actually went to, was it museum specimens? Yeah. So the one thing that's really, you know, we couldn't have done this 10 years ago, but one of the things that's really cool about the new approaches to genetics is that 
you don't have to have specimens preserved in very particular ways. Simple drying works pretty well, and and what that means is that you have the opportunity to go back to these archival specimens, not for the virus, but for the host, and retrieve uh, the genetic material associated with them. And by doing so, uh, Ian Houston, the guy at Cornell, was able to screen for these for different viruses, including the one that we think is the likely pathogen, and found it in not just that one that was seven years old, but in other ones as well. And so it opened up a huge amount of information to us because it meant, you know, we could clearly say that it was already present in the environment. And that really it was a very important step because it kind of lets us follow a track from now on, with to, uh, and which is to find out what is causing it to be so virulent now. And, and that, I want to stress, that's, that's the key question right now because it will give us indication about whether this is likely to be a one-off event and it doesn't really hold any portent for the future or whether this is something related to something like climate change that could um, increase in frequency over time or um, would maybe give us information about whether this is likely to jump to other species. It's a really important kind of finding. Right. Wasn't there a thought that it could jump to other echinoderms? Yes, yes. And that was based upon uh, past events. And in the past events, we had really no clear idea whether there was a pathogen involved in every one of these because we just didn't have the approaches back then. But um, in the past events, there was clearly a jump or at least the simultaneous uh, impact on other species. And we haven't seen that very much to date. You know, it's been largely restricted to sea stars. There's been some reports that have been coming out recently that suggest that perhaps it is jumping to other echinoderms, specifically urchins, but this is really, really just based upon a couple of reports here and there that we're pursuing. So I don't want to get people too excited about this, but but there have been some recent reports that suggest that it's that there may be a jump to echinoderms to other echinoderms. Interesting. Now I know one of the thoughts was that perhaps a warming trend of the ocean could be a factor, but at the yeah. same time. When this started, there really wasn't too much of a warming trend. No. Um, how about the, this is probably too short-term an event to make any conclusions from, but this summer we had a very large warming event happen in this region. And was it warm enough for that to be a factor for sea stars as well? It, well, two points on this. One is you're absolutely right. You know, we've seen a number of... Uh, Fortunately, because, as I said before, this has been really well characterized because we've been able to generate a huge amount of data from, you know, typical monitoring methods that have been done by scientists, but also from citizen scientists who have sent in lots of reports. So we actually have a huge amount of data that reflect where the disease initiated and the places and the times where it initiated. And we do not see a clear signal yet of temperature or ocean acidification or any of the obvious, like, you know, environmental stressors. That doesn't mean that they're not there. It just means that they're kind of cryptic at this point. With respect to warming in particular, warming all by itself, if you just take animals into the lab and you warm them up enough, they're going to show exactly the same signs. And um, and so it, we have to be careful with respect to warming because it can act in two ways. It can actually cause the same symptoms all by itself if you get animals warm enough. The second thing is, is that it will also cause a pathogen to become more virulent. And and so it's a it's a tricky one because we don't know which of the two might be operating if you see wasting in the presence of warming, whether it's just a pathogen that's made more virulent or whether it's the warming all by itself that is causing the symptoms that we see. Because we do see, you know, in localized areas, some places where warming occurs and you see wasting that follows directly following it. But we also see wasting initiate in the middle of the winter 
when the water is relatively cold, and, um, and there's just no general pattern yet. So interesting. Thank goodness for the ongoing monitoring sites that are happening up and down the coast. Yeah. And great to hear that there's some recruits that are establishing themselves in the intertidal area again. Some right up near where you are, too. I mean, there's, there's places up and down the coast that are not very common, but every once in a while we'll see, and we get these pictures from citizen scientists or our own folks, and there's so many of them, these tiny little things that are the size of your little fingernail, all over the place. It's just, it's really amazing. Well, that's really good news. Is it, in terms of, I mean, sea stars are significant because they're a big predator yeah. and have such a impact. Has it, because this has been going on over a year, have there been any changes in these communities with the loss of these big predators? Or is it too early to tell? No, well, well, we, you know, fortunately, again, we have these really amazing data sets from certain areas where we've not only counted sea stars for a long time and sized them for a long time, but also the rest of the community. But even more importantly, we've mapped the rest of the community, so we know where everything was. And uh, we are starting to see in a few locations the early signs that the community is shifting from one that was less dominated by mussels to one that is more dominated by mussels. And I'm talking about tide pool communities right now because that's where we have most information. Mm-hmm. So it's too early to say whether this is going to be a general phenomenon up and down the coast, but it's not too early to say that we are starting to see that that predicted change in the communities that comes from the loss of this keystone predator. Well, and hopefully we'll be able to see these younger sea stars actually survive. And that, that's a whole thing in itself that's interesting. You have these young recruits while there's this disease going on, and yep. how are they able to survive? So, well, we don't know that yet, but we'll be, we're tracking it. We'll let you know in six months. All right. So are you still in, interested in hearing reports from people that are out tide yeah. pooling in terms of uh, p- contributing their information? What's the website for that again? It's, it's uh, seastarwasting.org. So just spell it like you, you know, sound, seastarwasting.org. But most importantly now, we've added another component to our website. In the past, we've asked people, citizens, to submit their records when they see wasting. We still want that. But now what we've done is we've added a new page, which is um, a record that they can submit when they see babies. And to help them, we've put in a link to a catalog of what baby sea stars look like per, for each species. So if people see little babies, you know, they can take a picture of it or they can remember it and come back, look at our website and say, oh, that's Pisasterocratius, you know, the common intertidal sea star, and then submit a report indicating that because now what we want to do is follow the recovery along the coastline. And again, the more eyes looking, the better it's going to be. Um, that's fantastic. Great to hear. And that's giving me something to do over Christmas with my family for sure. <laughs> So thank you so much, Pete, for the update. And I really love hearing how science progresses our understanding of these huge events. And it's really fascinating. So thanks for sharing all your information today. Well, thanks for having us. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Have a great afternoon. Okay, bye-bye. We've just been talking with Dr. Pete Ramundi from UC Santa Cruz and getting an update on the sea star wasting disease that's really affected the West Coast predominantly, all the way up from Alaska down to, to Mexico. And some hopeful news and that there's some little baby sea stars that are making their way into the intertidal habitats again. So that's really exciting. If you want to learn more about that whole event and ways to get involved and report your sightings, you can go to seastarwasting.org. And there's great ID guides there on identifying sea stars. So great way to, to start learning more about sea stars in itself. We are going to take a short break, and I'm going to come back. We'll finish up the show with just some other announcements that are happening in our area regarding the ocean. Thanks for tuning in.
some different things that are going on that you might be interested in. I just learned of a 15-minute film documentary called Racing with Copapods that is premiering this Thursday at the a restaurant in Sausalito called Fish, Fish Restaurant. And it's at 7 o'clock, and the screening is at 7.30 p.m., And basically, the film, the description of the film is 12 middle school students or 12 middle school youth take a race sailing course where they study the fastest animal on Earth, which turns out to be copepods, which are zooplankton. And we have them here all over the place in the ocean and in Tomales Bay. And in the process, they connect with the natural marine world and become advocates for its well-being. So it sounds like a really fun film. I know they have some big uh, names in the film, like Sylvia Earle. And it's a, a wonderful little piece that will be fun to see. I haven't seen it yet, but the preview looks great. You can go to uh, the Racing with Copapods Facebook page. They also have a website, racingwithcopapods.org, and check that out. But that's this Thursday, December 4th at 7 o'clock at Fish Restaurant in Sausalito. So catch some dinner, some drinks. There's a $5 suggested donation to see the film, Racing with Copapods. The Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary Advisory Council is seeking applicants for three seats on the council. Uh, The council ensures public participation in sanctuary management and provides advice to the sanctuary superintendent. And the seats that are available for applications right now are the primary seat for education and alternate seats for community at large, Marin County, and the research seat alternate. So people can apply by getting an application at the Cordell Bank website, cordellbank.noaa.gov. Applications are due December 31st, and the council consists of 14 primary and alternate non-government members representing a variety of public interest groups. It also includes a couple government seats representing the Coast Guard and NOAA Fisheries. It's always a really interesting meeting, very informational of things that are going on in the region, and it's really wonderful to have the participation from the community and helping to support management of this special place right off the coast here. So if you're interested in learning more about that, you can go to cordellbank.noaa.gov. There's a a link right off the homepage there to learn more about the Advisory Council. And there are always public meetings, which we usually have here between Point Reyes at the Red Barn Classroom at the seashore and Point Blue Conservation Science in Petaluma. The meetings are in those two places. So you can check that out. I just was thinking about Christmas coming up I can't believe it's almost there, and books and gifts. And I just have two books that I want to share with you. If you're looking for the right book for somebody that likes the ocean, one of them is a children's book, and it's called Neighborhood Sharks, Hunting with the Great Whites of California's Farallon Islands by Catherine Roy. And this book just came out this summer, and it's a book that talks about the local white shark population here in our region for kids, and she vividly creates, recreates a day in the life of a shark and reveals why sharks are essential to our ecosystem and deserve our protection. And I know through local shark researcher Scott Anderson, uh, she did her research for this book. She definitely talked to the right people, and the facts are right, and it's a really great book for um, kids probably between the ages of 7 and 12. So check that out. Neighborhood Sharks, Hunting with the Great Whites of California's Farallon Islands by Catherine Roy. Speaking of sharks, I'll add this one little note before I got to sign off with 
with our closing here, but I had a chance to go out with Scott on the boat last week to keep up on the research he's been doing with our local population. And I had a chance to finally see my first white shark, and it was amazing. And it was just outside Tamales Point, and it was just definitely a new experience for me. I've heard about these things. I've talked about them. I've interviewed people all about them, and I finally got to see one, and it was just outstanding. Um, I was really glad to be in a boat because they're really big. Um, Another book that you want to check out either for yourself or for a gift is just been wonderful to keep up with. It's called Blue Mind, the surprising science that shows how being in, near, or on, or under the water can make you happier, healthier, and more connected and better at what you do. And the author is a guest I've had here on Ocean Currents before, Wallace J. Nichols. Um, I had him on a couple years ago when he was just beginning to explore this arena in terms of uh, the neuroscience of the impact of the ocean on us as humans. And it's a wonderful book, a great read. And I know there's some local organizations trying to bring Wallace J. Nichols to Point Reyes to do um, a a reading and uh, a little lecture about the work that he's doing, Blue Mind, and, and how this might help apply towards helping protect the ocean in as a greater sense. So books are wonderful. For gifts, those are two great ocean books that I recommend, Blue Mind and Neighborhood Sharks, Hunting with the Great Whites of California's Farallon Islands. And that about wraps it up for me today. The Ocean Currents show is the first Monday of every month. This is the last show of 2014. I'll be back in 2015. You can catch all the past shows that I've hosted here at cordellbank.noaa.gov or subscribe to the Ocean Currents podcast in iTunes. And we'll see where we go next year with more more to bring to you about the ocean for KWMR here on West Marin Community Radio. Thanks so much for tuning in today, and I hope you have a wonderful holiday season. Thanks for tuning in to KWMR. You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening.